Uh, let's uh, open our time together with prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we get into uh, the unfathomable truths of your eternal decree, we pray that we would have a certain degree of humility that would allow us to look at these things and confess where we are unable to go further, uh, to properly confess what we can know, and to rejoice in it, that you are a God who chooses to save us even before the foundation of the world, and that we might take comfort in your electing decree. Help us now to understand your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be looking together at Articles 6 and 7 of the first head of doctrine. Um, So if you're using the Psalter hymnal, that's on page 898 in the back. Um, If you're using the medium version, the Forms and Prayers book, that's on page 260. And if you're using the paperback Creeds and Confessions, it's on page 148. And that's as much help as you're going to get from me, okay? Um, But just trying to help you appropriately locate those things. So we're going to look at Articles 6 and 7 today um, of the first head of doctrine. Um, And this is where we actually begin to get into election proper, um, where we actually get into election. Article 7 is the definition of election in the first head of doctrine. Every, art, every head of doctrine has one or two particular articles that define the Reformed doctrine. Um, and so this is, the, this is the article that defines election. There will be another article that defines reprobation. So that's the other side of God's divine decree um, to pass over some and leave them in their, in their fallen state. So that's a different article. We'll get to that, Lord willing, in time. Um, And so we want to talk about this. So Article 6 really deals with God's eternal decree. And Article 7 really then is, what is election? So sort of election defined. So as we said, every article has a sort of procedure that it goes, that it follows. It talks about common Christian convictions before moving into particular reform distinctives. So that's what we've been going through so far, the common Christian convictions. And now we're getting into more God's particular decree concerning election. So rather than beginning in eternity, we talked at the beginning that we began in history. Uh, we began with fallen humanity that man had cast himself and his, and his progeny into sin, that we were all under the condemnation of God and God would have done no injustice by leaving all of humanity in that common state into which they'd plunge themselves. However, in his mercy, he sent forth his son into the world so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So all are condemned and everyone who believes can have eternal life. We made both of those points very clear. And so that God saves by faith. He sends in his love, sends gospel ministers to go into the world to share this good news of a savior and that people respond in one of two ways. They either believe or they don't believe. Um, and we made the point of last time being clear to say, if you don't believe, that's not God's fault. That's the fault of the person who rejects the gospel. They, they have the blame for that. Um, and if you believe, it's not down to you being smarter or sharper than others. It's down to the grace of God and giving us the gift of faith that we might see what we couldn't see without him. 
Um, and so we were going through history into that, into, in time, how those things unfold in time and history. Um, and now we get to eternity, the eternal decree that's behind what happens in history. And we always know that that's how the world works. There is a divine God in heaven who is maintaining all things by his sovereign counsel. He's moving all things according to his will. Um, And they happen in history as it relates to us. But God also exists in eternity. Um, And so this is the much more difficult part of what we have to talk about, God's eternal decree. Um, So we, we can say that in God's eternal decree... That's where faith comes from. Why does God choose to give the gift of faith to some and not to others? Right? So if if there are two sources of belief and unbelief, right? There are two explanations, two outcomes of the gospel. You either believe it or you don't believe it. Um, Why do some believe? Well, they're given the gift of faith. Well, the next question is, why are they given the gift of faith? Right? We keep going back behind these questions. So why are they given the gift of faith? Well, they're given the gift of faith according to God's eternal decree. And that's what Article, that's what article 6 is, is teaching. Um, so in Article 6, we see that's why God does these things according to his eternal decree. Um, and so that's the subject of Article 6. The fact that some receive from God the gift of faith within time and that others do not stems from his eternal decision. For all his works are known to God from eternity. In accordance with his decision, he graciously softens the hearts, however hard, of his chosen ones and inclines them to believe. But by his just judgment, he leaves in their wickedness and hardness of heart those who have not been chosen. And in this especially is disclosed to us his act, unfathomable and as merciful as it is just, of distinguishing between people equally lost. This is the well-known decision of election and reprobation revealed in God's word. This decision, the wicked, impure, and unstable distort to their own ruin, but it provides holy and godly souls with comfort beyond words. Why do some believe and some don't believe? It all comes down to God's eternal decision. Um, We can see that in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 15. Uh, We don't just, we don't construct our doctrine and then go looking for text to explain it. Uh, We we go to scripture and we let scripture speak and then we say we have to accept these doctrines because they're taught in scripture. And that's taught clearly in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 15. Um, what, What does Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 15, what do we read there? Well, Paul says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. And this is very important. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. So God's purpose of election might continue, not because of his works, because of works, but according, but because of his call, She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have compassion, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Um, Why does God do what what he does? 
so that his purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call. That's just right from the scripture. Uh, That's not theological language that we've come up with. That's exactly what Paul says. So that God's purpose of election, his purpose of choosing, might continue. Um, Paul makes that very clear. Um, Why do some receive faith faith and others do not? It all proceeds from God's eternal decree of election. And from Acts 15, 18 and Ephesians 1, 11, we're told God does what he does knowing all things from eternity. So God has made eternal choices that, that predate history. Now, again, we can't really say they predate in eternity because eternity is irrespective of time. But that's the best we can do in terms of our way of thinking of it. Before there was time, there was a choice, a purpose in God, um, a purpose to send some to receive faith and not to others. And what has he decreed? Well, first, we're told in the, in the article, he's decreed to graciously soften hearts, however hard, of his chosen ones and incline them to believe. Jacob is a good example to use because Jacob, as we read of him in Genesis, is what is technically known in the trade as a rat. Okay, Jacob behaves like a rat often in Genesis, right? He steals his brother's blessing. He tricks his father. He, he's, he's known as a heel grabber, right? Um, he's not the guy you want to say is the most virtuous of all people in the scriptures, right? Um, but God loved him. And God had made a choice to soften the hardness of his heart and to incline him to believe. So despite the fact that he comes across as a rat in the narrative... God identifies him as himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God calls himself by a name in the Old Testament, he calls himself the God of Jacob. Right? That, that's, a, that's a miraculous thing for us to really ponder and think about. That would be worth a whole Sunday school to take time to think about the fact that God is willing to identify himself with someone like Jacob. Um, And why is Jacob who he is? Because God chose in eternity to love Jacob, to soften the hardness of his heart, to incline him to believe so that he would be saved. God had made that decision before they'd done anything good or bad, that the purpose of his his choice, his election, might continue. Um, But God also makes another decision in eternity, Um, And that's by his just judgment to leave in their wickedness and hardness of heart those who've not been chosen. Uh, That's what Calvin called the awful decree. Um, Awful because of what it means for people like Esau. Um, That God decided to leave Esau in his wickedness. And it's important as, as, as it comes to us to remember that was a just thing for God to do. Um, Now, that doesn't make that any less hard to accept, that God chose not to love Esau. Um, But but it doesn't also change the fact that Esau was also a rat, right? Um, It wasn't that Jacob was so much better than Esau. What made Jacob better than Esau? God loved Jacob, and he didn't love Esau. And he left Esau in his state. 
Now, we are inclined to say, poor Esau. Um, and we, we sort of neglect the fact that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. That's what he thought of God's promise. And even though he wanted it back with tears later, he still despised what he had. He showed by his whole life that he didn't want anything to do with God either. Um, and, and really what he showed by his life is, I hate God. Right? So it seems like it's unjust, but the, the, or the canons are rightly reminding us, what God does is just. If he leaves someone in the sin into which they've plunged themselves, he's not doing them an injustice. He's making a decision between two people who are equally deserving of condemnation um, and choosing to show one mercy and show another justice. But to choose to show justice is not an injustice. That's what's hard for us. It feels like it is. Because if God could save him, why wouldn't he? Um, uh, but there, there are all sorts of reasons that we can't really probe the depths of that, right? Um, but scripture clearly teaches that he chooses to save some and he chooses not to save others. Um, we can think of 1 Peter 2, 7 through 9. So the honor is for you who believe, but the, for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, um, a people for his own possession. Right? What makes them different than us? They were destined to unbelief. You were a chosen race. That's just the same thing as saying elected race. Um, it's God's choice that makes the difference. So how are we to understand that eternal decision between people? Um, well, that, that sort of statement that's set off in, the, in Article 6 is so important for us to continue to, grasp, to, to wrestle with um, as we think about this doctrine. Um, especially, this is especially disclosed to us in his act, unfathomable and as merciful as it is just. Um, we can be very grateful that the authors of the Canada Door admitted to us there's a, there's, a, there's a certain sense in which why does God do what he does is unfathomable. Um, so if you're having trouble, if you're finding yourself sitting there saying, I don't know how to reconcile this, um, that's okay. There's a certain sense in which it's unfathomable. It comes from reasons in God. Right? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's what God says. That's as much as we can probe that. Beyond that is unfathomable. Because they both deserve the same thing. Right? Jacob and Esau both deserve wrath. The fact that one receives mercy that's undeserved and one receives the wrath that's deserved, we can't fathom why that choice is made. Right? So if you're having trouble with it, that's okay. We, we confess it, but we don't pretend we can comprehend it. And that, that's why in Romans 9, Paul has to make that point. Well, that sounds like kind of like God is being unjust. Does, is God being unjust? Well, by no means. Because he does things for reasons of his own that are um, 
unknown to us. But we have to understand that this decree is as merciful as it is just. Those he saves, it's mercy. Those he leaves, it's justice. It's not injustice. And I think that's the problem we always are struggling with in our mind. One feels like it's right. The other feels like it's wrong. Um, but that's not, that's not actually what's happening. One gets justice. Another gets mercy. Um, we have to kind of cling to that. That's what God's word clearly teaches. God chooses to save some and he chooses not to save others. Now, how do people respond to this choice? Well, the canons say you can respond to one of two ways. Um, if you're the wicked, um, the wicked, the impure, and unstable will always distort this choice to their own ruin. They'll always point the finger at God and say this is somehow God's fault. Right? Um, but they'll never, they'll never rightly understand it. They'll always somehow say this is, this is somehow unfair. Um, and it's important to note that if we accuse God of injustice, that, that's an indication that we are being wicked, impure, or at least unstable. If we start calling God who is the father of all justice and who defines what truth is, we begin to start calling him unjust. Uh, we recognize it's our wickedness that's creeping out, not him. I mean, the fundamental problem we have with this doctrine is we don't really believe sin is that serious. That's the real problem we have with this. God should just save people. Um, that the sinners really aren't that bad. He should just, Esau wasn't that bad a guy after all. Um, why doesn't he just save him? Um, but that's not a choice that's up to us. That's a choice that's up to God. And Esau was deserving. I mean, that's the real, at the bottom line, that's the problem we have. We just don't think people deserve to go to hell. Maybe Hitler, Stalin, and a handful of other people, but most people don't deserve to go to hell. And what the scriptures teach us, all of us deserve to go to hell. That's the thing we really struggle to wrap our mind around. And it shows the deceitfulness of sin that we really don't think of ourselves as being as bad as we are. Um, God does no injustice by leaving some in their sin. And so some people will distort this doctrine to their own ruin. They'll say this is God's fault, God's being unjust. Um, but on the other hand, there's a wonderful promise. It provides holy and godly souls with comfort beyond words. Does the doctrine of election provide you comfort? That's its purpose for believers. That's what it's meant to do. It's not meant to set before us a puzzle that we can't solve. Don't we hate it when people do that to us? Give us some like really hard trick or puzzle and we, you look at this thing, a box or something, and you go, I don't know what, I don't know what to do with this and it's just gonna make me look dumb. Or you know, they give you the two horseshoes that have chains together and there's a ring in the middle. There's a way to get this off. And like, no, there's not. It's impossible. You know there's a way to get it off, but you can't do it. Is that what God's doing to us? He's giving us the horseshoe chain together and saying, figure out how to get the ring off. No, he gives this to us. Why? To say to those who put their faith and trust in Christ, it was my plan to save you before there was a world to save. It was my plan to save you before there was a world in existence. What that should comfort us to know is that if we put our faith and trust in Christ, it's because God gave us the gift of faith 
in the time before time. And it's because he had chosen an eternity to give us that gift because he'd chosen an eternity to save us. That the world came into being with a plan in the world for your salvation. That's why this should bring comfort to godly and pious souls. That you were on God's mind as an object of his mercy before there was a world. And that therefore as the world came into being, it came into being with the purpose of working out your salvation. That's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? That the whole world, you know, sometimes we say, you know, the world doesn't revolve around you. And we know what we we mean when you say that, right? The world doesn't revolve around you. I heard that from my parents a few times growing up, right? The world doesn't revolve around you. Um, Now, we know what we mean when we say it that way. But in a certain sense, this world revolves around the church. That is what this world was made for. For God's people to be saved. For God to work out his plan of salvation built as a theater for his glory, not just as a maker, but as a redeemer, so that you might be redeemed. Right? Before the world was built, God was saying, I love Jacob, I'm going to go get him. And he said that about each and every one of us who believe. I love them, I'm going to go get them. I'm going to save them from the misery into which they they plunge themselves. And that choice was made before there was a world. Right? That means that choice is irrespective of history. Right? And, and God tries to remind his people of that from time to time. Right? I don't change. That's why you're not consumed. Right? God has to say that to his people from time to time. If I were a God that changed, you'd be dead because you guys are not worth it right? in yourselves. Um. You know, read something like Isaiah 48. You guys call yourselves by my name, but not in truth or righteousness. And I do these things suddenly because otherwise you'd say idols did it. And I'm telling you, you've not heard this before because otherwise you'll come to me and say, yeah, I knew that before. Like we're rats. I mean, that's just the way it is. And God is saying, if, if what you did changed what I do, you'd be dead. I'd start over with a new people like I warned Moses I was going to do. You know, I've had it, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses interceded with God for the people. Don't do that for your own name's sake. Why doesn't God change? Why aren't we consumed? Because he's already made a choice. He made that choice before history started. Um, before there was a history, there was an eternity in which God decided to save you. Um, now, if you're saying, I'm not sure I'm elect because I'm not sure whether I'm part of that group that believes or not, then put your faith in Christ. Right? I don't, we, don't, we don't do these. God, God's eternal decree, we're talking about what happened in his eternal decree in eternity. That doesn't change anything about what we're called to do in history, which is what we started with. You're all equally deserving of hell, but here's the good news. There's a Savior who saves. You put your faith and trust in Him, you'll be saved. And if you put your faith and trust in Him, what will you know? You'll know that before the foundation of the world, He he made that choice to give you that gift so that you'd be saved. It's supposed to be a comfort. It's supposed to be a comfort for God's people to know that we were on God's mind. 
Um, and when people come along like the Arminians who said, nope, that makes God unjust. Um, you have to say, no, it doesn't. Um, God is not unjust in what he does. That's sort of the, the theme of um, the rejection of the error in paragraph eight. Um, you don't necessarily have to turn there. I don't want to spend a lot of time going through the rejection of errors because they're kind of complicated in their wording. Um, and it would take a lot of our time just to kind of unfold them a little bit. Um, but what, re- what Article 8, the rejection of, of errors, paragraph 8, um, in the first head of doctrine, it boils down to this. It's the question, is God righteous if he decides to leave people in their sin and pass over them without giving grace? Is God still righteous to do that? And the Arminians said, no. It would be, it's an unrighteous thing for God to pass over people when he could save them. So if God is passing over people, that means he's unjust. Um, and of course, the Reformed answer was, that's not what God says in his word. He says, I show mercy on whom I'll show mercy, and I'll harden whom I will harden. Um, that, that's specifically taught in Romans 9, uh, particularly verse 18. Uh, Matthew 13, Jesus said, God gives some to know the kingdom, and some not to know it. So those are the words of Christ, Matthew 13, verse 11. And God reveals things, right? Um, Jesus is rejoicing in Matthew 11, 25 to say, I thank you, Father, that you reveal these things to little children, and you hide these things from the wise. So the the, the reform looked through Scripture and said, God gives mercy and he hardens, both sides of that. God gives to know, and he doesn't give to know. God reveals to some, he hides it to others. God is making the choice both ways, and God can never be charged with doing something unjust. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, God is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. The reformer said, you have to argue from scripture the other way around. God decides to save some and he decides to harden others and everything God does is just. Therefore, it must be righteous for him to do what he does. And if you don't see it, it's because you really don't see what man deserves. That leaving them in their sin is justice. And God is just or merciful either way, but he does what's right. Um, And so we always have to maintain that. So, that's, that's kind of generally on the eternal decree, right? And then Article 7 defines what election is. Um, Article 7 gets into the definition of election. Not reprobation, not the other side. Just the choice to save. That's what's defined in Article 7. Um, so we, we get that. And the scriptural proof for, um, I guess I should probably put that on the board, huh? Romans 9, 10 through 15 is a good passage for Article 6. Um, and Ephesians 1, 3 through 12 is a good passage for the definition of, the, of election. Because this is what Ephesians 1, 3 through 12 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. 
Okay, so he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Um, Over and over again, choosing, predestining, according to his purpose, to be holy and blameless, to be adopted as sons and daughters of of the Lord. All of these things God is choosing, God is purposing, God is willed so God works out. That's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 1. Um, and so we can go through the, 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 the article on election, which is kind of long, um, but we can, we can point out some important features about that. It's unchangeable. We've already talked about that a little bit. Now, why is it unchangeable? Because it's eternal. You know, see article 6. Um, because it's eternal, it can't be changed because it doesn't happen in time. It's, it's already been made as a decision. It's already been made as a choice. It happens in eternity. So election or choosing is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. Right before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Okay, there, there's a lot there um, just in terms. So it's unchangeable, it's eternal. We've already, talk, we've already talked about both of those. Um, both important to note about the doctrine of election. It's also gracious. God did not owe anyone anything when he made this choice. It was all out of him. Um, it's all according to his gracious will, by sheer grace. So it's undeserved by anyone. Right. It's also a sovereign choice according to the free pleasure of his will. So we believe in free will. You can write that down. We believe God has it. Um, you, you knew there was a catch there somewhere, right? Um, we, we believe in free will. God has it. And God acts out of his free will um, according to his good pleasure. He chooses out of sheer grace according to his sovereign will. Um, Again, so it's nothing deserving in the person. It's all coming out of our sovereign God. It's not because of anything in us, right? That's what the sort of next section that I didn't read gets into. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. He did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all the chosen and the foundation of their salvation. He did not do it because we were more worthy than other people. It's all down to his mercy. It's all down to his grace. And God's choice is definite or particular. Sorry for those of you in the 
cheap seats. I can't see the, the one down here. Unchangeable, eternal, gracious, sovereign, and definite. He chose people. He didn't choose classes of people. He didn't choose conditions. He chose people. He chose people to save. He didn't say, I chose Jacob-like people to save. Or those who evidenced the kinds of things I saw in Jacob. Nope, it wasn't according to works. It was, I loved Jacob. Um, That's the glory of the decree of God when it comes to election as it relates to you. He said, I love you. Right? I'm going to save you. Um, he knows those. He knows those who are his. He calls them by name, and says, "You are mine." Right? That, that, that's God sets His love on individuals and chooses to save them. Um, he chose a people um, it, that he that he actually was going to save. He decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved, and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through His Word and Spirit. Right? That's what Jesus meant in John 6, 37 to 39, when he said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Right? All that the Father chose will come to me. Right? That's, that's eternal language. And here's the glory of history. And everyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. Those who come to me, come to me because of the Father's eternal decree and the gift of faith in time and history. But here's the promise that Jesus makes to everyone who might be worried, am I elect? Which is never a good question to answer. Someone asks me, am I elect? I will always turn it back around to you and say, do you believe? That's the question that we need to answer. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Because he says, those who come to me, I'll never cast out. Um, but if they come to me, they come to me because the Father sent them to me. Um, whoever the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. The Father gave people to Jesus. Jesus redeemed people, and Jesus doesn't lose the people he redeems. He'll say later in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That word in Greek is very strong. Almost the Father drags him, which is what people like Jacob and like us need. So his choice is definite. His choice is also effectual. I want to put effectual up here. Oh boy, that went wrong. His choice is also effectual in the sense that those he chooses, he works on. So his choice, there's power that goes out of his choice um, as a result. So um, when he decrees something, he causes it to take place in history. So he decreed it in eternity, but he works it out in history. And how, did he, how does he work it out in history? Article 7 says, in other words, he decided to grant them true faith in Christ to justify them, sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of his Son, to glorify them. What did he choose to do? He chose to save completely. 
right? He chooses to save, not chooses to, you know, give you faith and then have you work it out. He doesn't ever pass off the baton of salvation to someone else. What he chooses to do, he does. So what does he do? He gives faith, he justifies, he sanctifies, he preserves, he glorifies. So this is, this is a choice in eternity to finish the work. And that's why we say, looking at Scripture, if you say, Jesus does his part and I do my part, you turn him into half a savior, The decree was not, we'll send Jesus to do part of the work. The the, the decree in eternity was, I'm going to save them, and I'm going to send Jesus to do it. And and from eternity, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, said, I'll go do it. The Father purposed to save and planned to save, and the Son said, I'll go do it. You give them to me, I'll go save them. Because the Father loves us and the Son loves us. And that's how we know he loves us. He says, I'll go save them, even if it means me dying for them. That's the love God has. So he grants faith, he justifies, he sanctifies, he preserves, he glorifies. God does it all. That's the choice he made before the foundation of the world to do all of that for his glory. God is serious about his glory. Um, see the Old Testament if you don't agree with you don't believe me. God is serious about his glory. He will not share his glory with another. He does what he does that he might glorify his name. Um, that's, that's why he does what he does. God did all of this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. Does that sound kind of familiar? Um, I hope so. That was this morning's sermon. It's not been that long since this morning's sermon. Uh, <laughs> I mean, by Monday or Tuesday, I could forgive you, but I mean, honestly, it's noon. Um, no, right? The riches of his glorious grace, that, that's what it does. What does all of that do? It magnifies God as the one who does it. And that's really the whole purpose of the canons of Dort from start to finish, is to say there's a redemption because God planned it, God came in history and accomplished it, God sent his spirit to apply that work to you, he preserves you in it until he comes back and glorifies you. He's going to preserve you in it to the end. He's doing it all. And so all the glory goes to him. Um, And so we always have to remember that in election as well. Um, This is all from God and this is all taught in scripture. That's what Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 teaches about election, that God makes the choice to make us adopted into his family, predestined, chosen, glorified according to his purpose. Uh, It's all according to his purpose. It's all accomplished by him. Romans 8.30 also makes that point. Okay, so the Arminians come along and they object to that as well. Um, we see that objection in paragraph one of the rejection of errors. Um, they say, that's not what we can know. You can turn with me in this one. We'll look at this one briefly. So it's just after the articles. So this is the first, this is the first rejection of error. Um, so you'll see... Um, Page 264 of the middle book. I'm not going to help you with the other books. Um, The first paragraph of of rejection of errors. Having set forth the orthodox teaching concerning election and reprobation, the Senate rejects the errors of those, one, who teach that the will of God to save those who would believe and persevere in faith and in the obedience of faith is the whole and entire decision of election to salvation and that nothing else concerning this decision has been revealed in God's word. 
you're saying, thank you for that at noon. Um, what am I supposed to make of that? Um, well, this is what we're supposed to make of it. The Arminians have come along and say, you can't know this for certain about election. You can't, say, you can't say that it's unchangeable, eternal, gracious, sovereign, definite, and effectual. You can't say that about it. All you can say about it is that those who believe and persevere in believing to the end will be saved. But you can't say anything about who those people might be. You see the problem in that? You're like, no, it's noon and this is the first time I'm thinking about it. Um, here, here's the problem in that. It takes everything that happened in eternity and brings it into history and makes election nothing more than, than what I'm doing. To say I can say nothing more about election than those who believe and who persevere in faith and persevere in obedience will be saved. You see how this radically changes the question? So if I ask you right now, are, are, you, are you saved? The best you could do is say, I might be. Because I believe and I'm trying to obey, but I'm not sure if I've persevered yet to the end. You kind of only have to say, ask me when I'm dead. Because I could fall away at some point. And Arminians would say, that, that's as much as we can know. We can know the conditions, that's it. We can't know, we can know the kinds of people who are saved, we can know the kinds of people who are saved, but we can never say who's saved or say anything more about election. Um, and of course, the reform give a soft response to that. For they deceive the simple and plainly contradict Holy Scripture. You know, they, they used to be able to talk with a fair amount of certainty in these things, right? They the Arminians deceive the simple and plainly contradict Holy Scripture in its testimony that God does not only wish to save those who would believe, but that he has also from eternity chosen particular people to whom, rather than to others, he would within time grant faith in Christ and perseverance. As Scripture says, I have revealed your name to those whom you gave me. Jesus' words, the high priestly prayer, John 17, 6. Likewise, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Acts 13, 48. And he chose us before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy. Ephesians 1, 4. Armenians are constantly accusing Reformed people of being rationalists. That we're more interested in philosophy and creating these big systems where they just are simple Bible-believing folk. But do you notice how what the Reformed did in this time was just come back and go right to Scripture? and say, who believes? Those who were appointed to eternal life. Who did Jesus come to save? Those who were given to him. He knows his sheep. That's what he says beautifully in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I know them, and they follow me. Or John 17, 2, and we'll close with this. When, John, when Christ is praying his high priestly prayer in John 17 two, he says, glorify your son since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's the beauty of what scripture tells us about election. The father in eternity chose to set his love on you and he gave you to Jesus to be saved.
And Jesus came into the world and saved sinners. The the decree of election just says that's why it happened. If you want to know why the cross, why you believe, why you're sitting here believing in the Son of God, it's because God had decided before the foundation of the world was laid to save you. That should bring us comfort to know that truth. Um, Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that in your marvelous mercy and grace that you chose not conditions or classes of people, but Christians to save. We thank you that if we believe you and put our faith and trust in Christ, we can know that we receive that gift of faith only because you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Help us never to lose our sense of marvel that you and your holiness would love people such as us, people like Jacob. Um, that, That comes down to your sheer mercy. And Lord, how thankful we are for it. And how we pray that many more people would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and know the glory of coming to the realization that if they believe in him, it's because you love them from before the foundation of the world. Father, thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. May we always honor you for it. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you. You're dismissed.